As we move forward in worship now, we're going to attend to God's Word. Our passage for this morning is Isaiah chapter 41. Sarah Harmon will come up in a moment and read a section of that passage for us. Now, what you'll see over the course of the message this morning is that Psalm 41 really is an argument, it's a declaration that the Lord indeed is God, that He is the only God, that He is above every other God. And so the other text that we have here this morning will also reflect that fact. Moyer will come up and read Psalm 97, which again declares that the Lord is King above all gods. Romans 1, 19-25, which Nate will come and read, reminds us that everyone on earth has this knowledge of God within them, and we all spurn that knowledge and create idols for ourselves. And then Kathy will come and read for us from Matthew 22, which reminds us what is to be the primary result of this reality, of the greatness of God, that he is above all gods, that we are to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And so let me pray now for the reading and teaching of God's word, uh, that we will indeed receive it in faith as we should. Heavenly Father, your word itself says that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, I pray that we would each experience that reality now as we hear your word read and proclaimed. I pray that you would help me, especially as I preach your word, Lord, to preach not only with accuracy, but also with passion, with power, Lord, as I ought to, of these glorious truths that you have given. And Lord, for those here listening to your word, I pray that you would open our hearts to believe every last word that you have spoken, Lord, not to pick and choose what's easy to believe, what's not easy to believe, but to put our utter faith in your word so that we can live for you as we are. So God, work all these things now by the reading and preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 through 14. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you, Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, for I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world, and the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. 
Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Romans 1, 19 through 25. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is to be blessed forever. Amen. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and gathered them together, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of these two, on these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. Well, as we come to Isaiah chapter 41 now, the words of comfort are continuing for us as God's people. Again, we saw back in chapter 40 this big turn in Isaiah from all these words of judgment upon the earth to the words, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And the words of comfort this week in particular, as we look at Isaiah 41, are not the words of comfort that we may suppose just culturally speaking. I think most often when I think of what does it mean to comfort someone, we think of words like, oh, it'll be okay, you'll feel better soon, that sort of comfort, the sort of words of comfort that I might give to my child if they had skinned their knee or bumped their head. But in this passage, the words of comfort that God has for us are not these small, encouraging words of comfort. No, these words of comfort that God gives are aiming for the very deepest parts of who we are, the very foundation of all of our hopes and dreams. The words of comfort are to be the most profound words that we could have that end up transforming our very lives. And I hope that even as we see how God encourages us In these passages, we can also learn to comfort one another as God's people, that we take Isaiah as our model. When we think of, okay, how do I encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ? We can see how does God encourage us in these chapters, and we can use the same sort of language and reasoning as we encourage one another. Now, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit in in Jesus' final discourse in the book of John is given the title paraclete. That's the Greek word that's used for the Holy Spirit in that passage. Now, in the Old English translations of the Gospel of John, they chose the word comforter 
to translate that word paraclete. That, that translation goes all the way back even before the King James to Wycliffe himself who first put the Bible into English. He chose to use the word comforter when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Even Luther and his German translation used the German word for helper or for, for comforter when he translated the word paraclete. Now, it's a very interesting decision, is it not? Because again, I think in our modern context, when we think of a comforter, we generally think of somebody who's patting someone else on the back, telling them everything's going to be okay, telling them that everything is going to be better. And yet, apparently, in medieval Europe, this word comforter, the idea of a comforter, was much stronger than that. It wasn't merely someone who helped you feel better in the midst of your sorrow, although it did include that. Rather, a comforter was something that was much, much more. In its strongest use of the term, a comforter was someone who strengthened a soldier's heart for a battle that lied ahead. You can even think of how it's sometimes depicted in the movies, how you have a whole row of soldiers lining up to do battle, and often there's someone on horseback riding in front of that line of soldiers, yelling to them, saying, take heart, the battle is coming, we will win. That is the picture of a comforter, someone who is preparing them for a tough battle that lies ahead. You think of a soldier and how their heart must be so fearful and wavering in those moments before battle. And to have a comforter at your side telling you that you will win the victory, that you can fight this battle. This is the idea of a comforter that the paraclete, that the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is. And I think that Isaiah here is using this word comfort in much the same way. He is not merely saying that God will help us to feel better when we feel bad, although that is very true, rather extends even beyond that, that God comforts us in the sense that he prepares us for battle. He is encouraging us for the great work that God has for us to do. In the Hebrew lexicon, the word that's used here for comfort, it says that comfort does not merely mean to sympathize, but to encourage. So God's comfort for us as a people is not merely sympathy. It's not merely helping us when we're down. It is also encouraging us in that march that lay ahead. And so what comfort does God have in store for us this morning? What encouragement will steal us for the battle that lies ahead? Now again, at first glance, I think when I say the main idea of this passage, it may not strike you as encouragement, but Lord willing, you will quickly see why this passage is just that, why it can be such a strong encouragement to our hearts this morning. And the encouragement that Isaiah particularly has for the people of God this morning is simply this, that God is God. God is God. This is Isaiah's encouragement for the people of God. God aims to encourage his people, to, to comfort them, to steal their nerves by reminding them or demonstrating to them that he really is God alone. And this fact that he is God alone should take away a thousand of our fears and anxieties. Knowing that there is nothing else that we could trust in that is superior to him, that is greater than him, is itself the deepest comfort that we could possibly ask for. 
Again, this is a comfort that does not merely help us feel better in a time of sorrow, although, again, it should do that to our hearts, knowing that God is above all, that nothing comes into our lives apart from His will. But it also comforts us in the sense that we are now prepared to move forward into God's battle. We don't stand back just waiting for a better time, a better opportunity, a less dangerous moment, a time when things seem less risky. No, when God is God, we can have this comfort and encouragement to always move forward in the same way, knowing that God will always be there and is always able to help us and to strengthen us. And so in Isaiah chapter 41, God aims to illustrate and and animate this claim that he is God by means of painting for us a courtroom drama. Okay, so just like people today like to watch Judge Judy, well, guess what? People in the ancient world apparently also liked courtroom dramas. And so God lays out a courtroom drama here in 41 where there is a case to be made that he is God. And on the other side, there are those making the case that he is not God. And in Isaiah 41, we see who wins this courtroom battle. Is God truly God? Is he truly the Lord? Or is something else more powerful than him, greater than him, more God than him? Now, in this drama, it is God himself who is the judge, but he also prosecutes one side of the case. And so, yes, he is a biased judge in this case, but I think that's understandable. And so, on the one side, God himself argues that he is God. And on the other side, we have the nations of the world, or as the ESV puts it, the coastlands, arguing that their idols are the true gods. And so the basic outline for this chapter that we're going to follow for this message is that we have the introduction to the scene in verse 1, and then verses 2 to 20 are all God arguing his case, arguing the point that he alone is God. Verses 21 to 24 are then the nations arguing their case. And then verses 25 to 29 are the conclusion of the case, the the final conclusion that God wants us to draw from what has just been said. Now, as we look at God's argument in particular, which makes up most of this passage, we see that there are three primary parts to this argument that, again, we're going to follow through the course of the sermon. First, God claims his unrivaled power makes him God in verses 2 to 4. Second, his ability to protect and even advance his people is made in verses 8 to 16. And then third, his ability to do the impossible in verses 17 to 20. All of these things come together to demonstrate the one conclusion that must be made, that the Lord, Yahweh, is his name. He alone is the true and the only God. And so we are going to go through this case that God makes this morning and we are going to apply it to our own hearts that we would take comfort to go into the battle that God has for us. And so verse 1 of chapter 41 sets up this courtroom drama. God says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. 
Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Now in that last line, when God says, let us together draw near for judgment, he's not talking about judgment between good and evil. He's talking about judgment in the sense of a judicial decision, a conclusion that is going to be drawn. Let us all come together for a firm and final decision. That's what he means by let us together draw near for judgment. Now notice who is called together. It says, listen to me in silence Oh, coastlands. Now, the ESV has chosen the word coastlands, but this word in the Hebrew has a broader lexical meaning. It can mean so much as the nations of the earth. It can mean these far-off coastlands. But in this particular context, I do think that God is calling all the nations of the earth to this courtroom. He's calling all the nations of the earth to this moment of judgment. You can skip ahead to verse 5 and you can see why I would think this. It says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. So often in Hebrew poetry, what you get is two parallel lines, the second one explaining the first. And so what does it mean by coastlands here? Well, it means the ends of the earth. And so God is calling the whole earth together to reason with him. The whole earth together to form this judgment about who truly is God. And notice also, finally, in this first verse, that God doesn't want some weak case He doesn't simply want to draw up a straw man and then knock down the straw man. No, he says in verse 1, let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Now, one of the remarkable things and the first indications of how this is going to go is how God would say in this verse, let the people renew their strength. This is the very same phrase that's used in the previous verse, in verse 31, when it says, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. This points to us, again, that this is some kind of competition between those who are on the side of God and those who are on the side of the nations. On the one side, we have a people whose strength is renewed in God. And on this other side, these nations, these coastlands that God is calling together, he says, let you renew your strength in the way that you are able to, and let you come to me and make your case. Let's see if your strength is the same kind of strength that I supply to my people. And so God is saying, renew your strength, nations. Come to me and let's have an argument. Let's draw near for judgment. Let's have a final decision. And so this chapter is set up as this courtroom drama, as the coastlands drawing near to God for judgment. As soon as God utters this first verse and calls the coastlands to him, to come together for judgment, God then launches into his own case. He launches into the case in his favor as God alone. God's first argument is that his power is indeed far greater than any others. And so this is verses 2 to 4. We can read it together. It says, Who stirred up one from the east? whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, 
I am He. And so God is claiming that this mighty conqueror, again, verse 2, stirred up from the east, whom victory meets at every step, this mighty conqueror has been raised up by God Himself. Now in context, and especially as we go on in Isaiah, we should understand this to mean the empire of Persia, who is the, the greatest kingdom in all the earth in these days that Isaiah is writing of. And so this one stirred up from the east is the emperor of Persia, whom victory meets at every step. It's the mightiest nation in all the earth. Nothing in the ancient world could be fathomed that was stronger than this empire of Persia that was conquering every other nation on the face of the earth. It's like the ancient equivalent of our atomic bomb, the greatest power that we could possibly imagine. And God is saying that He is the one who stirs up this kingdom. He is the one who sends this kingdom forth. The logic is essentially this, that if He, if if the emperor of Persia makes every other kingdom His servants, and if He is God's servant, then how powerful must God be? How great must God be? If even the most powerful kingdom on the earth is simply a servant who does God's will. God is saying, my power is so far greater than anything else on earth that I alone must be God. This is God's first argument that he makes in his favor. Now after this, in verses 5 to 7, Isaiah kind of closes the introduction to this legal case. He gives us the initial response of the coastlands, the initial response of the the nations of the earth who have drawn near. And so look at verses 5-7 to with me. It says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Okay, so this courtroom drama has begun. And then what does it say? Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. Okay, this is them strengthening one another. Says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. So everyone has gathered together for this decision. And notice how they are strengthening themselves as they come. That's what verse 7 says. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, right? This is in response to God's exhortation in verse 1. Let the peoples renew their strength. So all the nations are coming together. They're trying to strengthen one another, encourage one another with the only strength that they have. And what is the only strength that they have? It is these idols that they themselves have made. That's why it says the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer strikes with the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. In other words, the best they can do to strengthen one another is to say to one another, oh, that idol is really nice. You've really done a good job putting the gold over top of that. You know, maybe add a nail right there so that the arm is a little stronger, something like that. This is how the nations, the peoples of the earth, strengthen one another by complimenting one another on their own workmanship, on the gods that they themselves have made. In other words, their strengthening of one another is absolutely pathetic in comparison to the strength that we get from the God of heaven and earth. 
Their strength is no strength at all as they try to complement one another on these works of their own hands. They have no strength outside of what they themselves can do. And in contrast, beloved, God strengthens us with a power that is so far above our own, that is so far above everything on this earth, that we should be strengthened in a way that the world can never fathom. It makes me think of Acts 4 verse 13 where Peter and John are speaking boldly in the name of Jesus Christ after Jesus has died and he's ascended into heaven. And Acts 4.13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, these very weak, ordinary people are suddenly bold in ways that cannot be explained by their own merits, by their own abilities. Rather, there is something outside of them that is strengthening them, that is helping them. I've recently been reading through Pilgrim's Progress with my family. And one of the most beautiful illustrations that I found so far is there is this one pilgrim named Faithful, who is always a very shy and timid pilgrim. But one day, when they are in the city of Vanity Fair, he is brought before the judge of Vanity Fair, and there is an angry crowd gathered all around, just ready to kill them. And in that moment, it says that Faithful speaks up with a boldness that he had never had before to proclaim the greatness of his king. You see, he had a power that was outside of himself. It wasn't just the work of human hands. He spoke boldly in the midst of great danger. And so we as Christians, we have this power, we have this strength that doesn't come from us just complimenting one another, saying, oh, you're strong, you've done a good job, you've done a good job. No, our strength comes from seeing the glory of God and the strength that he himself is able to offer. And as we see in verse 5, in contrast, the coastlands are afraid and they tremble even as they are drawing near to God. So, after this first argument and this summary of the scene, Isaiah launches into the second argument for God's sovereignty, for God's being God that we have in this chapter in verses 8 to 16. The thrust of these verses is that God must be God because of how he is able to protect his people and how he's even able to advance his people. And so notice first how God takes ownership of his people in verses 8 and 9. God says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Isn't it beautiful how God claims his people? Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, Abraham, my friend. And then he continues on in verse 9. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. In other words, God is not ashamed of his people. Even though they are a weak people, even though they are a scattered people, even though they are an insignificant people, God nevertheless says, you are my people. I have chosen you. You are my friend. God is not afraid of our weakness. No, he claims us as his precisely when we are weak so that, as we will see, he can demonstrate his power. 
Because second, notice just how insignificant God's people are. In fact, God even highlights in this passage how insignificant his people are. As it says in verse 9, his people are gathered from the ends of the earth. In other words, they are very scattered people, very far removed. They're not some centralized, important people. They are people scattered from the ends of the earth. And then perhaps one of the lowest descriptions of man in all of the Bible, in verse 14, it says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob. (laughs) Fear not, you worm, Jacob. God calls his very people, the people that he says he's chosen, that he loves, he calls them a worm. This is how low they are. This is how weak they are. This is how helpless they are. So God's ability to strengthen us is not a statement of our own strength or sufficiency. God doesn't choose the talented and the strong. No, he chooses those who are scattered, those who are worms, those who have no strength in and of themselves. And so God chooses this weak and fragmented nation. And then notice how he promises to protect them. So look at verses 11 and 12. He says, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Isn't it remarkable how God says this to a people who are so weak, who are so divided, again, in the context of Isaiah, of a people who are actually in exile, captives in a foreign land. And yet God says to those precise people that all those who strive against them shall be as nothing and shall perish. That all those who seek to contend with you shall not even so much as be found. They shall be nothing at all. This is the extent of God's protection of his people. And again, I think that even to this day, just the fact that a Jewish ethnicity still exists should cause us to believe and be in a little bit of wonder at this God. How many times throughout history have people sought to totally kill off the Jewish people and yet they still exist? God has still watched over his chosen people who he chose as far back as Abraham. And God not only promises to protect them, he even promises to advance them. Now, how remarkable is this promise that any other God would be afraid to claim protection for people like this because they're so hard to protect because they're so weak. But God says, I will show my power by protecting you. But not only does he promise to protect them, he promises to actually advance them. And so look at verses 15 and 16. He says, Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory." So God does not merely promise his people survival. He promises that they will thrive, that they will overcome enemies, that they will win victories, and that they will have rejoicing in their hearts in the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. 
And so these people who are a worm, who are scattered from the ends of the earth, God says, because I am your God, you will be protected and you will march forward into glorious victory. A threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. This will be the weak people of God. And so, again, this falls into this courtroom case that God is making. And the point that God is making overall in these verses is how could this be? How could these people be protected? How could this weak people advance unless God were their Lord? Unless their Lord really was the true God. There's no way that this people could survive unless the God of Israel were truly God. The essence of both the argument and the encouragement of this section is repeated at every juncture in these verses. And the essence of this point is precisely that God is God. Look at verse 10, where God says, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In other words, he's saying, because I am God, therefore take heart. Therefore do not fear. Do not be dismayed because I am the one who is helping you, who is strengthening you. God repeats the very same idea down in verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. You see, God is repeating over and over that He, the majestic one, the only God, is the one who is their God, who helps them and strengthens them. And then finally, and perhaps most beautifully, in verse 14, again, as soon as God says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, He again repeats, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. In other words, what reason do you have to be discouraged when your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel? When God is your God? He is above all. And if He is the one who helps you, if He is the one who is for you, then no one could possibly stand against you. And so God must be God because this weak, fragmented people, He is able to protect and He is able to advance. God then launches into His third and final argument for His divinity in verses 17 through 20. Again, in these verses, He is claiming that he is able to do the impossible. And because he can do the impossible, again, he alone must be God. In part, this impossibility that God is able to perform is talking about things that are physically impossible. And so look at verses 18 and 19. He says, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set them in the desert, the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. So God is saying, 
wherever you see barren wilderness, I am able to make that fruitful. Again, things that are impossible with man are possible with God. And yet the fact that God can do these physically impossible things points us to the reality that God is also able to work internal, spiritually impossible things in our hearts. And so look at verse 17. It says, When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, that is I, Yahweh, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And so God is saying, even for those who are parched, even for those who are internally dry, a wilderness, barren, I am able to give life where there is none. It reminds me of the interaction that Jesus has with the woman at the well in the New Testament. And he says to her, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for living water. And then a little later on in the Gospel of John, in John 7, Verse 38, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. God is not able to simply make a little trickle come out of our soul when we are dry. He is able to make rivers of living water appear in the wilderness. Again, whether that be the physical wilderness of our world or whether that be the wilderness that feels like your own heart, God is God, and he is able to make life come out of death. And so part of the way that God demonstrates that he is God, part of the way that God desires to demonstrate that he is God, is by taking a people who are an utter wilderness inside, who are full of only enmity and hatred, and to fill them with love and hope and joy to make them a lush valley of everything that is good and beautiful in the inner man. God can do that for you precisely because he is God. This is the definition of God that Isaiah 41 is giving to us. The one who has all power, the one who can work the impossible, the one who can protect and advance anyone at all. And so now we get to the response of the coastlands in verses 21 to 24. You can see in verse 21 that God invites their case. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. And so God is inviting the nations of the earth to explain to him why their gods are somehow superior to him, what their gods can possibly do that he, the Lord, cannot do. And yet, what the rest of the case turns into, instead of the coastlands, the nations of the earth, having this withering argument, what the rest of this case turns into is God demonstrating that they, in reality, have no case whatsoever. And so look at verses 22 and 23 with me. He says, let them bring them and let them tell us what is to happen. So them referring to their gods, let them bring their gods. Let them tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. 
In other words, he's saying part of your case must surely be that your gods can let us know the future. Or if not the future, then maybe your gods can at least tell us the outcome of current events. You know, what's going to happen maybe just tomorrow or next week. And yet he is making the point that their gods cannot even so much as do that. You see, the true God, as we saw in God's first argument, ordained the rise of Persia from centuries ago and governs the movement of Persia to this very day and knows exactly what is going to become of this mighty nation of Persia. And these idols, by contrast, they don't know the outcome of the events of the day. They don't know what's going to happen in the future. They are no gods at all. In verse 23b, the second half of verse 23 The case is even heightened. God says, do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. In other words, he's saying that your gods are so puny, they cannot even do any kind of ultimate harm or ultimate good. Sure, they can make small stuff go wrong. Maybe they can even make small stuff go better. But they cannot do good or do harm that anyone on earth should be dismayed or terrified at their works. Again, compare this to the true God who can do ultimate good, who can bring springs out of deserts, something that no one else in all of existence can do, who can do ultimate harm, who can actually destroy the body and the soul in hell. Again, nothing else on earth can do this. He is the God who does ultimate good and ultimate harm. Therefore, everything should be dismayed and terrified at Him and at Him alone. And the sum of this contrary argument is given in verse 24. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is He who chooses you. And yet, beloved, how we saw in Romans 1 and how many of us experience in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, how easy it is to trust in these worthless idols, these things that have no power, that cannot make life come out of death, that cannot do any sort of ultimate good or harm, that cannot guide us into the future. And yet, we so often rely upon things like entertainment or family or money or sex or any of these things, thinking that they will somehow be able to deliver us from the wasteland that so often feels like the modern world and even our own hearts. This is what the nations trust in. And yet, God says that I, the Lord, want to strengthen you and want to help you. And so the whole conclusion to this court case is now given to us in verses 25 to 29. In verse 25, God reiterates his power. In verses 26 and 27, he reiterates his ability to tell the end from the beginning. And then finally, we reach the ultimate conclusion in verses 28 to 29. It says, but when I look, there is none. Among these There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. 
No other God in all of existence, no matter how great we may think that God is, no matter how long that God seems to have had success and had sway, there is no other God. And again, beloved, it's easy for us to look around the world today and see things that have existed now for so many centuries. They seem so powerful, so immovable. We think that we can set our hopes in them. We think that we can get guidance from them. And yet, when we compare them to God, the reality is that they are a delusion and their works are nothing. And so, beloved, I hope you can see how the truth that God is God, that God is God alone, should really be an encouragement to our hearts. Indeed, should be a greater encouragement than any other encouragement that we could possibly have. When we know that God is our Lord, and when we know His power, how it so far surpasses everything else in all creation, then we realize that there is truly nothing else to fear. Because He is our God. And yet, if any doubt remains in your heart this morning about what God is able to accomplish, about whether God is able to strengthen you in particular in your weakness, about whether He is able to transform your particular wilderness into a rich and lush valley, then I would just encourage you in this moment, in this closing point of the sermon, to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross of Jesus Christ, it indeed seemed that all was truly lost. And indeed seemed that the gods of this world had overcome the one true God when the Son of God Himself hung in death. It seemed that we truly would have to place our hope elsewhere. And yet, even in that, even in that moment of greatest defeat, where it seemed like all the forces of the world had finally overcome the one true God, what do we see except God bringing about His greatest and most permanent of all victories? It is a victory that not only demonstrates God's power, but it also demonstrates His love and compassion for those who are weak for those who are dead, for those who are lost in their sins. In other words, it says that no matter how weak you are, even if you feel as dead as possible inside, God is able to give you life because that is what He did for His own Son. And what is offered to us is union with Him. One of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Beloved, if God is able to even bring the death, the dead to life, then surely He can bring you through whatever trial you may be going through. If there is any step of obedience that you fear because you think in your mind, oh, this will make me miserable. This will take me into a wilderness. This will be painful. Then just know that God is able to bring resurrection on the other side. 
He is able to deliver from every sort of wilderness and pain. In fact, sometimes the Lord even brings us into wilderness and pain precisely so that we can see his resurrection power and not the power of our own wisdom and insight. In 2 Timothy 2.11, Paul gives Timothy in the encouragement by saying, this saying is trustworthy, for if we had died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Beloved, the power that is spoken of in Isaiah 41 is not less in our day than it was for the people in Israel's day. If anything, it is more through Jesus Christ. We have such great power offered to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we should be able to go to Isaiah 41 and claim this God as our own. We should be able to go to verses like 10 and 14 where God says, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And take hold of that this very day. There is no reason, beloved, to slow in our obedience, to slow in our advancement for gospel purposes if God is indeed at our right side promising to strengthen us, to protect us, and to make us these sharp instruments always moving forward. And beloved, we don't have to say we have no weakness, our weakness is behind us in order to advance forward in those ways. Rather, what we must do is own our weakness. Say, yes, I am weak. Yes, I am sin prone. Yes, I am frail. Yes, I feel wilderness inside of me. And yet I know with this great God that I can do anything through him who strengthens me. And so, beloved, take heart this morning that God is God. That he is the living God. He is able to strengthen you and help you and cause you to stand, regardless of your weakness or your frailty. And so, let's go to him now in prayers of intercession, knowing how mighty he is, prayers of confession, knowing how he welcomes us in the blood of Christ. And then let's sing to this Lord with all of our might. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we can come to you the God who is above all the earth, the God who is above every other God, the God who alone is God, and we can lay our requests before you, and we can even confess our weaknesses to you, knowing your great power to strengthen us and help us. And so God, would you now hear our prayers of intercession? Would you now hear our prayers of confession as we draw near to you in Jesus Christ?